Hey guys, welcome to another episode of Purpose Over Paycheck. I can't wait for you to meet our next guest. Anu currently serves as Executive Director of International Justice Mission in Canada, also known as IJM. Prior to her role as Executive Director, she spent the last 10 years working with IJM in South Asia, which has led to the freedom of over 10,000 people from labor slavery. She has overseen the training of more than 17,000 police, government officials, and NGOs on the rescue and rehabilitation of individuals trapped in slavery and bringing criminals to justice. She holds multiple degrees in law, business, and organizational leadership. Here is my conversation with Anu. Anu, how are you? I'm doing great, thank you. Thank you so much, Brett. So I want to wish you a happy late Mother's Day. How old are your kids? Well, they will turn one in exactly six days. Oh, man. So you got your hands full. I do have my hands full. I mean, <laughs> yeah, these are twins. I mean, I don't know what it is to have a single child and then uh, lead life you know, as a working mother. But I do know what it is to have twins and then you know, try to do other things on the side. Right, right. And with COVID going on, are you working mainly from home? I am. Uh, and that has colored a lot of my meetings. It has made it a lot more fun because um, a lot of uh, people on the other end of the screen uh, would end up hearing my babies too. Almost right, like right. That's awesome. And I have to ask before we get into it. Yeah. You know, I've listened to a lot of podcasts and different uh, just lectures from Gary Haugen. Mm -hmm. What is it like to work with Gary? Wow. Um, it's amazing. You know, it's not often that you come across um, people with a great vision. Uh, and I mean, even if you do, uh, it will not be aligned with uh, a theory of change that you've always believed in. Mm -hmm. um, and even if it does, it may not be something that uh, moves you or your heart. For me to work with Gary Hogan is an alignment of all of that. It's just incredible. I never knew of uh, Gary Hogan before I knew about International Justice Mission. And we can get to that story at some point, but the, 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 the man is incredible. What he envisioned 20 years ago is something that is most relevant in this day and uh, age. It's like working with a legend. <laughs> yeah. I'm actually reading his book right now called The Locust Effect. You know, I've had Must it. Read. Yes, I've had it on my shelf forever. And then, you know, it just sparked my interest. And so I've been working through that. And he has some really insightful things regarding just violence and poverty. Yes. Yeah, it's, it's a great read. It's, it's something that, um, you know, gave me the, oh, bingo, kind of a moment. Uh, almost a decade after I encountered, uh, you know, violence myself. So I just was not able to put those pieces together. But the locust effect completely, um, you know, blew my mind away in, you know, basically he articulated what I couldn't articulate, though I had first-hand experience with violence myself. You know what, yeah. you know what that looks like? I mean, that's, that's how much of a genius he is in, yeah, you know, framing that theory of uh, change. Yeah, so great book. <laughs> so tell us a little bit about where you grew up and what led you to pursue a career in law. I was born in Kerala, southernmost tip of the Indian Peninsula, but brought up in Chennai. All my growing up happened in uh, Chennai, uh, erstwhile Madras. Not many people know Chennai as Chennai. It's uh, a city in uh, Tamil Nadu. I, I think I was in grade three uh, when 
everybody around me decided that I was going to pursue a career in law. And I don't think it was because I was argumentative. I think it was because I always um, had a strong opinion about things. But I, I was not, I, I don't think I ever knew that I was going to be, you know, practicing law in a way that I was going to be a defense counsel or, you know, a prosecutor. I just knew that I was interested in law and that was affirmed when we had a severe water scarcity uh, crisis in Tamil Nadu when I was 13 or 14. Uh, that meant that water was rationed. You know, the local authorities would bring a tanker filled with water and we will all go to that tanker with our pots. Uh, it was numbered. Every household got like a certain number of pots of water. You could go and collect water and come back. So I was thinking that there was something wrong with that kind of a system. And I uh, went ahead and purchased a bear act on, you know, understanding the roles and responsibilities and duties of the local councillor in ensuring water distribution. Long story short, I wrote to the editor of the local newspaper and, you know, went to the municipal office demanding for a permanent solution for ensuring that every household in that colony received water. So, you know, yeah, not even 14. They ended up bringing a tanker, not a tanker, uh, a setup which would ensure that we could go and collect water whenever we could, we were able to, in not in, you know, crazy hours when working people could not go and get water. And at that point, if there was any problem in that locality, people slowly started coming to my house and saying, telling my father, uh, hey, could you please ask your daughter uh, if she can find a solution for the garbage disposal program? <laughs> could you please ask your daughter if she can find a way to ensure that we have street lights in our... It, it was just bizarre. So I, I just ended up reading up, you know, books which would help me understand who I should be talking to in the district administration. And then, you know, it just kind of seemed natural that I was going to pursue a career in law. That's awesome. I always um, struggled with a certain, what do you say, norm, so to say, where I was born and brought up. The norm was violence was kind of normalized. I mean, I grew up watching women who were domestic servants uh, in my neighbor's houses being beaten up by their drunk husbands. And I just never could understand why that was okay and why nobody was intervening. So I was also that nuisance of a child who would constantly call the cops every time something like this happened. I mean, and what happens usually is the cops might come when they do. Um, the one, the victim would say, oh no, it's a family matter. Please don't interfere. And the cops would go. And so I was, I was this nuisance of a resident uh, in my locality. But, you know, that deeply disturbed me when a victim always thought it was okay and it was fine to be violated simply because the person who was inflicting violence and pain was her own partner. Yeah. And, and that all of those kind of instilled a strong sense of justice uh, and wanting to fix things that I didn't know that I could fix. Did you experience slavery? Um, and not as a young girl. So the thing about slavery is it's such a hidden phenomenon now. I mean, I should ask you, I mean, what, what, what is your context of understanding of slavery? For me, in the United States, we always hear mostly about sex trafficking. You know, women are being forced to sell themselves and, you know, they're treating like, like a commodity. 
but labor slavery has really become something new to me and working through Gary Gary's book we talked about it's kind of opened my eyes that even it exists here yeah but I guess my understanding of what it actually looks like is not deep your understanding is great usually when I ask people they're like oh slavery means people are chained uh, they have to be physically transferred from one place to another. And all of that, you know, things that you've heard from uh, history textbooks as to how uh, slaves from one continent were, you know, forcibly made to travel, you know, across the high seas. And, and then people take a whole lot of pride in keeping them as slaves. But what I've encountered, you know, where I was working in South Asia was, was just this very prevalent but a very hidden crime. It's out there in the open, but we won't get it. You just won't, um, you know, be able to, you know, put a pinpoint and say, oh, okay, so there is a slave. No, I mean, it's not that easy to uh, understand. Therefore, it makes it a lot more challenging for um, the public justice system to intervene. There are so many loopholes now more than ever because perpetrators are so creative and so manipulative in ensuring that, you know, people don't find out that they're engaging in human trafficking or forced labor slavery or modern day slavery. Many names to the same problem and the same concept. Human trafficking is a process of trapping people through the use of violence, deception or coercion and exploiting them for financial or personal gain. And again, girls are groomed, forced into sexual exploitation. Men are tricked into accepting risky job offers and trapped uh, in forced labors in you know factories, farms, building sites. Uh, I mean, you name it. There's not a single industry that I can think of which does not benefit from slave labor. Women are recruited to work in private homes to be trapped, exploited, abused behind closed doors with no way out. Children are uh, you know uh, behind closed doors, uh, trapped into uh, online child sexual exploitation. You know, in fact. Transporting or moving the victim does not even define trafficking. It can take place within a single country or within a single community. It can take place within a household without even any movement. And they can be exploited in many forms, you know, being forced into sexual exploitation, labor, begging, you know, forced to do things that are illegal, domestic servitude, forced marriages. The possibilities of exploitation is just so many. Um, so as I was a child, I did not understand or see behind, um, these several layers of slavery. I, I, I couldn't have, in fact, I knew that slavery was happening in my backyard when I first came across IJM's website, which was a good 10 years ago. Yeah. So what kind of led to that job then with IJM? I, uh, had a personal encounter with violence and I was running away from home. And I thought I was recovering when I, again, I was working with child laborers in uh, Bombay, Mumbai, and I was uh, beaten up by the local mafia uh, for doing something uh, which came in the way of their income. And that kind of let me, um, you know, having to, yeah, I kind of was physically debilitated. I ended up coming back home on a wheelchair. Mm. And then I had an opportunity uh, on the basis of the work that I had done in Mumbai, Mumbai using street theater to empower children and get them excited about education. Um, you know, someone uh, I was reporting to nominated me for the Jean Sauvé Fellowship Program in Canada. 
uh, with Megill University. It just was an incredible program. But the board, which called to interview me, um, asked me if I was able to walk then. After a year of recovery, I was able to walk, but I was not you know, functioning uh, fully. I was still learning to speak and walk and whatnot. But they were still keen to, um, you know, allow me to have that wow. opportunity. And I came to McGill, um, spent that year uh, as a Jean Sauvé fellow, learning, sharing, teaching, doing all sorts of things that uh, would have been a luxury otherwise. Anyway, uh, at that point, somebody who was working for me in India wrote to me saying that there is an organization like this. I mean, she had applied for an opportunity and she got rejected and she was obviously upset, but she wondered if I'd heard about it. And I was thinking, she's such an incredible lawyer. I mean, why wouldn't any organization want her? Right. And I looked IJM up and the first thing that happened when I saw the page was I burst into tears. I mean, the stories that I saw and that was my first introduction to Gary's theory of change. Um, the concept that we all believe that the solution to development would be ending poverty, uh, would be you know, education. I was teaching those kids, helping them go to school when somebody beat me up and ensured that I was not gonna be able to give or offer my services. So years of my understanding that education is the one-stop solution to ending poverty mm. kind of went poof in the air because of my personal experience. But what I saw on the website, you know, just, just completely articulated, um, you know, what the truth is. You need violence to end for poverty to end. Otherwise, anything that mm. anybody wants to offer the poorest of the poor, the least, the last, the lost, it's not going to be accessible. I mean, I know that from personal experience. The government comes up, comes up with various opportunities for those who fall below poverty line to have access maybe to free ration, some additional income. But if you're a slave, your master can basically access everything that is rightly or rightfully yours. So you know, anyway, um, I digress. But I saw that and I was like, this is exactly what I should be doing. But at that point, I was still recovering. I was not a good enough lawyer. I was not a good enough anything. I was not sure if IJM uh, would be interested in someone like me. I had an opportunity in Canada then to work, but I took a leap of faith, so to say, returned to India and requested, begged, demanded for an interview, was willing to work as an intern, was willing to pay the organization to let me work. <laughs> anyway... Well, a year and a half of persistent follow-up, um, I ended up working as um, the legal director with IJM in Chennai. It's leading a team of lawyers, and uh, we had about 300 cases that we had to follow up to make sure that the perpetrators of violence, perpetrators of uh, you know bonded labor system were behind bars. Yeah. So what would you say IJM's focus is as an organization? Is it just on trafficking or do they do more encompassing of justice in general? Yeah, so there are different responses to that. But uh, the generic one is, I mean, there are more than 40 million people living in slavery. And we at IGM believe that we can end slavery in our lifetime. And we do that by rescuing victims, restraining, making sure that you bring criminals to justice, restore survivors, 
an effective rehabilitation aftercare program to ensure that they don't get back into bondage, that they are not re-trafficked. Repair, which is strengthening the justice system. The mission of the organization um, has changed. I mean, earlier we started by rescuing thousands, protecting millions and prove that justice for the poor is possible. But the last couple of years, we have seen how working in partnership with the public justice system and with grassroots organizations has really brought forth a solution, you know, a vaccine, so to say, to put an end to this problem of violence globally. Yeah. Um, so the mission now has changed to rescuing millions, protecting half a billion and proving that justice for the poor is possible. So my desire um, is, is to you know, live to see a day where slavery ends. And I know it is possible because I've been very much part of seeing the transformation within the organization and also externally. When I worked in South Asia, what was possible for perpetrators a decade ago, even five years ago, even three years ago, is impossible now. It's just unbelievable what partnering with the public justice system can do. And when a strengthened public justice system responds to the cries of the poor, uh, you're basically looking at putting an end to the vicious cycle of poverty. That's incredible. What gender are we seeing mostly impacted this? by this? Is it mostly women? Is it mostly men? What about children? A shocking stat that um, is less than four years old is 71% uh, of the victims are women and children. And one out of four of them are children. Wow. And it's unfortunate because, you know, there are a variety of ways that uh, children are trafficked into the space. But if you're looking at bonded labor slavery uh, per se, families are trafficked. And this is why, you know, to my earlier point of trying to explain why it is so challenging to understand because people move and they are trafficked as families. They are forced for generations. Somebody might have taken a loan um, 100, 200 years ago for a loan less than $2. And multiple generations after them are still repaying that debt because of this trap. And mm. in families, you know, and, and when, when you talk about bonded labor system like that, the kind of exploitation that gets extended to, I mean, being poor makes you vulnerable, but being a woman or a child, um, um, you know, in a slave-like situation makes you extremely vulnerable and such an easy prey for exploitation. I've read a lot that people who are forced into labor labor are often deceived by a sense of debt or have received some sort of advanced payment that they can never repay. They just keep increasing the amount. Do you feel like that is really at the heart of the issue that there is this sense of debt and that they do feel trapped? Yes. I mean, there are also cases where people are lured, you know, in thinking that they're going to get a better opportunity. And that's the whole thing about modern day slavery, right? I mean, people from the city go into villages, tell people, hey, why are you doing your generational trade? Why you're involved in this? You have a great job opportunity. We will take you there and you will get this salary. And then they never return to their village. They are trapped for life because they're taken by these uh, contractors who use all of these tricks and lure and take them. If you're poor, you have needs. I mean, if there is a, a medicinal need, I mean, you're somebody in the house needs to go to a hospital, you know, there is a wedding, there is a funeral, there is, you know, all sorts of needs. And you generally are led to the wealthiest person in the 
village or in the community or in the city that you are. And they say, okay, take this loan, but you'll have to repay by working for me. Now that is the first point of an illegal transaction. It, that the illegality of this, when it begins to be a human rights violation starts here, because with that, you're basically restricted, you basically deal with restricted freedom of movement, restricted freedom of employment, paid less than minimum wages if you're paid at all, inability to sell goods at market price. So if you're fishing, you, you are not going to be able to sell your own product. I mean, what your catch, you will, it will be dictated by whatever your master says. If you're, you know, making statues, if you're making whatever it is that you do with your hand, you basically do not dictate what you can earn on it. Somebody else decides. That, that is one of the many ways that people are trapped into the system of uh, slavery. I have encountered several cases of generational bondage, like I mentioned earlier. It starts with the great-great-grandfather who has taken a small loan. We have rescued people who have been slaves for multiple generations and they step out. They don't realize that India has received its freedom. They still think that we are being ruled by the Britishers, you know, that far into the past. Why is this happening so much in developing nations? A broken public justice system. I mean, imagine you're poor. Add to it the complexity of falling outside the protection of law. You exist in a society where the public justice system is broken. The human trafficking business is a multi-billion dollar industry. And that means there is always, always a lot of demand. For that demand, you need cheap, cheap labor or slaves. And the only place you can get away by meeting a demand that big is by being present in a place where the public justice system is broken, where the fear of committing a crime does not reside in the heart of the perpetrator, but in the heart and mind of the poor. They are afraid to go to the public justice system for help or support because the broken system that is corrupt leans to where power and wealth resides. If the perpetrator knew that he or she had to face serious consequences, the statistics would be a lot different. This business of benefiting from exploiting the poor and the oppressed thrives because somebody can get away with it. And, uh, and, and the solution, as the locus effect uh, would eventually arrive at when you finish reading, is a functional public justice system. And it's not just the case for developing countries, I would say. I mean, there was one famous um, uh, recording of a woman who tried to reach um, uh, the police control room. And this was in the United States. I forget where. But apparently, the beat to that area was limited. Uh, the beat as in the number of hours the cops could be there. She called for help because her husband was threatening. He was outside. He was banging at her door, demanding her to open the door or he would come in and kill her. And she was pleading for somebody to help. But before the cops could get to her, he got to her and she died. Mm. So it, it, it just is an example of how violence does not escape anybody anywhere. It's just a lot more easier to get away from crimes in places where the public justice system is broken. I'm giving you an example of United States because, you know, you might... I don't want us to think that it it cannot happen here. It can happen everywhere. Right. It can happen where you don't have the reach to a reliable public justice system. 40 million is such a big number. And it's so overwhelming to think about. 
what what is a solution to a problem like that well i can't say this enough making sure that the public justice system is actually working to serve the needs of the poorest of the poor and igm exists because of this the approach that we have is what has um, is that which has helped us change our mission from rescuing thousand to rescuing millions which is partnering with the public justice system and making sure that we are focusing on repairing um, or identifying the gaps and making sure that we are working ourselves out of our jobs we are not that kind of an organization which takes pride in saying oh because igm was there we were able to do this i mean that just means that we have failed our hope is to be able to uh, work ourselves out of our job and be able to move from that case work after the pgs is able to function efficiently so partnerships are key uh, making sure that we are connected with people with power influence uh, and also the reach to be able to respond to those who fall outside the protection of law for the first couple of years the biggest challenge that we had was um, people in the government space not knowing how to respond if they identify uh, a bonded labor case so it 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 started as basic as that you know kind of creating a guide helping the pgs walk through what was instituted by law in the first place and bringing clarity a standard operating procedure so small things like that mundane boring but so necessary to ensuring that the day to day functioning of the government ensures that they can be excellent first responders to the needs of the poorest of the poor i mean those are the spaces that igm has been working in and that's why i say you know there is a vaccine uh, we just yeah and 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 i believe so much in it because i've seen the transformation uh, where i have worked right and you spent tons of time working in south asia yeah do you want to just talk about that time and how you and your team fought labor slavery there well absolutely i mean it's <laughs> well i could be doing this anywhere because it's not like like i mentioned before it's not a problem you know special to south asia or a problem special to certain countries slavery exists everywhere but the approach that we had was one focusing on identification where does it exist what are the symptoms how do we ensure that we are present in places where this hidden crime exists and then we uh, reach out to the district government and start working with them and let them know that a problem like this exists and walk with them uh, in identifying ways that we can rescue you know people trapped in slave like situations and then as soon as the rescue is done and every rescue is challenging i mean and every rescue is different there has not been a single rescue that has resembled the previous one because it comes with with so many challenges one the the industry that people have been trapped in the the clout that the perpetrator has and what that means as far as the equation with the you know the public justice system is concerned so there are multiple variables which uh, makes each of these rescues uh, difficult and different soon after people are rescued we embark on a two year rehabilitation program which extends to the time that the rescued now survivors need to ensure that they are able to get back on their feet the the challenges you know these are people who have spent like their entire lifetime listening to somebody uh, dictate what should be done when can you wake up can you wake up can you go to sleep can you eat what can you eat everything is dictated by someone else so suddenly 
when you are rescued from that situation, you don't know what to do. So there is a heavy focus for IGM in the rehabilitation component. While simultaneously, we work to ensure that the rescued survivors don't have to deal with the fear of the perpetrator coming back and re-trafficking them or re-victimizing them. And to ensure that we work to uh, restrain these perpetrators and keep the criminals behind the bars and continue to work in ensuring that we input into, you know, what would be a good legislative recommendation, what would be excellent for lawyers to pursue this case um, and make sure that uh, justice is done. I can just say that it has not been easy. I mean, not for me, not for the team. There are times that we spend, you know, 70 hours on the field, not having the opportunity to use the restroom, take a bath. But but it just gives us an insight uh, into what our survivors would have experienced in that space of slavery. So it's not easy. It is challenging. It is risky. But it's something worth putting your life on the line for. Absolutely. And you've rescued somewhere around, what, 10,000 people? Yeah. I mean, that's crazy to think about, Anu. I mean, the difference that you are making in so many people's lives. Like, I can't even fathom 10,000 people, let alone, you know, actually see them find freedom. The hero is the government here. The, the work that we do is to make sure that we go alongside the government and, you know, gently encourage them. Right. <laughs> <laughs> as much as it has been really difficult, it has also been hugely transformational. Oh, I believe it. Absolutely. Could you share maybe one or two stories of people you've been able to rescue and the transformation that they've had? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's a miraculous transformation for them, but also most importantly for me. They see the contrast of the life they have never lived. And I see the contrast of a life I would never want my children to experience. It's like two different people are reborn with every single rescue that me and my team are on. And I have so many favorite stories. Uh, pretty much every single rescue brings with it a story of hope. One fun rescue that I had, I mean, I, should, I shouldn't call it a fun rescue, but, but it, it, is, it is great because close to 100 plus people trapped in generational bondage, which is three to four generations not having the opportunity to step out of the brick walls of the brick kiln, not knowing that there was a life outside of that brick kiln. And as soon as this rescue happened, a very old lady, it's part of my culture um, uh, where you, you kind of bow down, fall at another person's feet to say thank you, to, you know, offer surrender. It's, 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 it's offering gratitude. Uh, I, I, I dislike that. I think it is a, a way to shift from one master to another. <laughs> and, and so soon after this rescue, um, you know, she came running, she's, old enough to be my grandmother, which is close to 80, you know, three foot nothing. Uh, but she came, she fell at my feet. I said, don't do it. It's not me. You know, just, just, just be glad that you're out now. There is so much more that you can look forward to. And this is me telling this to an 80 year old lady. <laughs> and then she was like, yeah, yeah, I'm so excited. But when am I going to see you next? Because uh, International Justice Mission focuses on rehabilitation, the next, as soon as a rescue, even if we spend, you know, 70 to 80 hours trying to work with the government, making sure that people are rescued, in less than 24 hours, we 
have to go back to the survivors and start working on their rehabilitation. So I knew I was going to see her in less than two days. I said, I'm going to come to your village in two days. Uh, for now, my team is going to go with you, but I will be coming in two days to meet with you. She was so happy. She was, you know, hugging me. She says, I've never seen a train before in my life. We put them all in a train. And uh, I've never seen a train. Oh, I've never seen tea being served like that. You know, there was, there's this hot case for tea. So everything that she was looking at was with so much of wonder and amazement. I, I compare that to what I see in Tamara and Ila, my daughters. You know, when they suddenly see something new, like for the first time when the sun shone in Canada, yeah, yeah, that did happen. <laughs> they were like, oh, they, they were just they were just basking. They were so filled with wonder uh, when they saw firecrackers. They were like, they filled with wonder. I saw the similar kind of, uh, you know, at that point, I didn't know. But, you know, a childlike wow and wonder in her eyes about everything that she was seeing. Mm-hmm. In two days, I go to her village uh, and I'm all excited to see them because... This is the best part of every rescue, right? I mean, you see them in a particular situation. You see them, you know, succumbed and surrendering to a master who they believe, you know, dictates everything and is almost like God to them because they're afraid he can do anything he wants to. And then suddenly they have the, some money which has been given by the government and they go back to a village. And she said, I don't know, I've, I, I was you know, 12, when I got married within the brickle, I don't know where my village is. I don't know anybody there. I don't know how I'm going to rebuild my life, but I'm still excited to go to a place I can call home and which is out of this. And I go to this village excited to see the transmission people because they can have their, a good bath, fresh set of clothes and, you know, actually feel and function like normal people. I see two people run to me and a young woman, she was running to me, calling me Anuma, Anuma. And I'm called Anuma in the field. It's a endearing way to address someone. You add a ma at the end of the name. And I was like, yeah, who's this? And she, she comes, she hugs me. And I don't recognize this woman. I was like, um, uh, hi, how are you? She's like, remember you rescued me? And I was like, um, yeah, I mean, what's going on? And I'm trying to keep a conversation going without making it awkward. And I see that her hand is jet black. I'm looking at her hand. I was like, what happened? I mean, is, is something wrong? Uh, she said, no, because you were coming. You know, I had some money that the government gave. I went and purchased hair color. I applied it all over my white hair so that I can look young for you. To this day, I, I, I burst out laughing, thinking, I mean, there are obviously tons of stories, um, you know, which deeply stirs my heart. But this always makes me smile. I mean, an 80-year-old woman starting to live her life. She has 36 grandchildren, eight children, all of them born in that facility, all of them born as slaves. And here it is, I mean, like her chrysalis moment where, you know, she blossomed after 80 years of living a life as a slave. To me, yeah, not only is it deep, these are turning points in my life where I start thinking of there are, yeah, I'm like, there are times when I'm like, oh my gosh, I've crossed 30. I haven't done anything with my life. And I look at, think of Urmila. She is kicking some serious, serious. I'm not, yeah, she's doing something. <laughs> she's, 
participating in democratic processes, you know, voting and, you know, speaking into what the local government should be going. She's such a strong survivor voice and a leader like voice for me. Then um, another story is of a woman who, you know, was um, pregnant with her second child in slavery and boy, how courageously she advocated for everyone else who was in slavery and rescued not just herself, not just her entire community, but also the baby from being born into slavery. Yeah, it's just, it's incredible, mm-hmm. uh, right? I could go on and on about lives that touch me. When I look at the rescued survivors who are now leaders in their own right, changing norms, challenging norms, and just transforming their communities. I'm like, I wonder how many Abraham Lincolns are hidden in the lives of these people who have not had the opportunity to step out of this wall of fear. Mm. You know, it's just, it's a shame. It is, it is a shame. It's incredible what you've done and the ripple effect it's had, you know, touching one life and how touching that person's life can do so much greater good as well. It's just, it's cool to hear these stories and how you've been able to just empower so many people. You know, my favorite moment is when one of the survivors sent me a WhatsApp video, you know, speaking to me. I'm like, that's awesome. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That is cool. I mean, it's like saying, hey, Anima, we just got a birthday cake now. Look at this video. I'm like, wow. I mean, that's a huge milestone. Um, And it also reminds us, me, especially how much I've taken this freedom for granted. Just unbelievable. Uh, I can wake up to a morning making my own plans. That's not the reality for those who are living in slavery. This freedom is something that none of us should take for granted. That's a good word. You have worked in some of the most dangerous places these past 10 plus years and brought light into the some of the darkest places. What have you learned that you'd want to share with the people listening? First and foremost, there is hope. It might seem like the world is going into the deepest, darkest void because every day you open the newspaper, all that you see and hear and read is depressing news. Especially for us who are living and working in this space, in the midst of this global pandemic, the poorest of the poor, the most vulnerable are a lot more unsafe now more than ever. You know, there is increase in intimate partner violence, there is increase in online child sexual abuse and all of that. So it's very easy for me to just sit there and say, oh, the world is doomed, but no, there is hope. It is absolutely possible to end slavery in our lifetime. I say it because I started by overseeing rescue of a few hundreds and we were able to rescue thousands in less than 24 months. And that ripple effect, like you mentioned, is growing. Grassroots organizations are getting empowered. Survivors are getting empowered. This problem, this dark, dangerous, heinous crime, as much as it is the you know, most highest in this time, uh, point of time in history, it is also the only possible time we can put an end to it. So there is hope. And the other thing that I would love your listeners to take away is that what we have right now is a gift. We have normalized very many things with our own existence, but let's not for a moment take for granted what we have. 
be it something as simple as having the freedom to do what you like. Third thing, I mentioned there is hope. I mentioned that we shouldn't take these things for granted. But I do want to mention that you have a role to play in putting an end to this problem. And there are different ways, very different ways you can do it. The first thing I would say is to be a little bit more conscious of how you're being part of the problem as against being part of the solution. What you're doing here today, Brett, is being part of the solution. It's people like you who open their palms to look at what is it that I have in here? Is it my voice? Is it me going to be using my podcast as an opportunity to bring and build more awareness around the issue? Is it the business that I own that I want to use to you know, be a little bit more ethical about how we monitor the supply chain? Is it the resources that I have that I can ensure that can go a long way in translating to ending slavery in our lifetime? That there are many things that we uh, may not recognize that we have, but we do. I think it is important for us to use that gift and give, 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 give. That's so good. Kind of going back to what you had mentioned about businesses is that, you know, a lot of businesses here in the developed world can actually perpetuate labor slavery. So a big part of the solution is business leaders need to carefully evaluate the sources of their goods. Yeah. Do you see that? Do you see that being an issue? It is a huge issue. And in Canada, um, you know, one of the, and I don't know what the statistics is there, um, the rest of North America, but 91% of them want to know where their goods are coming from, but there is no means to understand. The demand increases and pretty much every single corporation is able to sell goods less than, you know, a price that they actually should be charged because the supply chain is wont. You know, you could purchase a sh shirt for $15, 15 years ago. You can still purchase a higher quality shirt for $15, 15 years after. There is something really not correct there. Inflation has not affected this. So where mm. is it that the cost cutting is happening? Definitely labor. Um, so yes, it's a huge issue and consumers need to be a little bit more sensitive in understanding you know, the food that we eat, clothes that we wear, the, the, the house construction materials that goes in, everything might have a story of violence, rape, or bloodshed. So I think it is important for us as consumers to be aware of that too. Absolutely. That's good. So Anu, we've got to the end of the podcast. Uh, <laughs> so as you know, the podcast is called Purpose Over Paycheck. So what does that mean to you? Uh, simply a lot of things. It is a delight that uh, millennials especially are now thinking of thinking of things that people in my generation, I, I don't know, I hope, I hope to be qualified as a millennial, but maybe I'm not. But <laughs> there are several things that uh, people who came before us are responsible for. We have made some mistakes. And I am encouraged that the topic that you chose, the, the title that you chose for your podcast is kind of bringing to perspective what we should be placing importance or priority. I am in this space because I chose purpose over paycheck. I could a career to do this. This is not a career for me. I'm trying to work myself out of this space. I would 
love to see a day where uh, my role is going to be redundant. I think it's a phenomenal, phenomenal, um, um, you know, title, so to mm. say, <laughs> that people can live by, especially for those who are trying to think of what is it that they want to do with their career, with their future. End of the day, I can tell you, speaking from experience, I mean, I had my share of the world in the corporate life. Not that I have anything against it, but I sleep a lot better because I chose purpose over paycheck. Wow. I hope you guys were inspired as much as I was. I am so encouraged by the work of Anu and her colleagues at IJM. You can learn more about IJM by checking them out on social media or by visiting IJM.org, which I definitely recommend you do. It is one of the most highly recognized organizations in international justice. As always, subscribe if you haven't already and give us a follow on Instagram at Purpose Over Paycheck. Talk to you soon.